previously on the Earth 2 podcast. And the caption for panel 4 of page 22 of issue 186 of The Flash says, When Flash turns his time-travelling feet to the spot where he left Sargon. And we see the Flash back at the tree, which is definitely the tree from the cover of issue 159, and there's no sign of Sargon the Sorcerer. The Flash thinks, he's gone. Must have come to and took off for wherever he came from. Wonder who he is. No time to concern myself about that. I better get back home, tell Iris I'm all right, then Cosmic Treadmill it back to the 25th century and see if the docks then have a cure for what's bugging me. I can't chance collapsing again. The final panel of page two is a very moody shot of the Flash rushing through the city. Little like crossword puzzles, skyscrapers behind him, and a large looming image of Sargon the Sorcerer, very dramatically lit from underneath as Sargon seems to be watching the Flash and thinking, Return to your day-to-day existence, Flash. I've learned a lesson by trying to use an outside party to help me. Three times three equals disaster. You still have my ruby, Flash, and Sargon the Sorcerer shall return to get it. Then time shall be mine. This is not the end. Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Earth 2 podcast, your weekly podcast that explores the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters through the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us our second full episode of the Space Year 2023. This week, we have returned to the pages of The Flash and we're doing a story from issue 207 of The Flash that was published on the 15th of April, 1971. Mm. Now, before we go any further, I'm going to quickly tell you that issue 205 of The Flash that was published on the 9th of February, 1971, had a couple of reprints in it, including a Johnny Quick story from issue 189 of Adventure Comics, Mm -hmm. first published in April, 1953, and then previously unpublished Golden Age Flash Jay Garrick story entitled Journey Into Danger. But we're going to talk about that later because we're planning an episode where we talk about all the previously unpublished Golden Age stories, so don't you worry about that. We will come back to it. Isn't that right, Peter? Absolutely. We Fantastic. Sorry, I went all French there for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a clue to the contents of the episode that's about to unfold? No. Not in the slightest. Can you imagine? We've been to France a few times already, as it were, so that doesn't matter. Peter's going to tell you now about the cover of issue 207, our 26th Neil Adams cover. And it's a beauty. It's a gorgeous black background, which I love because everything pops on the cover. Uh, We have at the top, again, it's this weird period where we don't have a proper DC logo. We've got DC The Flash in the top left-hand corner with the Flash in a circle running towards us. In the top right-hand corner, we've got Kid Flash running towards us with his name underneath him. At the very, very top, it says, Extra, you Kid Flash super speed story, right above the Flash logo. Mm. But underneath all that, taking up the bulk of the cover, we have the Flash. It looks like he's jogging in the spot, running in the spot. He's frantically trying to move forward, but it just looks like he's doing some super speed toe tapping. Mm. And he's looking frantic as in front of him is a creature a demonic, ethereal creature who is coming down with a big gaping maw of a mouth, evil eyes, pointed tongue coming out with his big bony fingers and claws coming out. And he's going to attack Iris, who's lying comatose in a spotlight on the ground. Gosh. And the Flash is thinking, That nightmare is going to destroy my wife, and I can move from this spot to save her. And at the very bottom, underneath the spotlight, we have the title of the story, which is... The Evil Evil Sound Sound of of Music. music. 
Gosh, it's very exciting. No one can do panic like Neil Adams. Yes, it's very good. Yeah, it's a very scary demon. He's he's sort of blue. It almost looks as though there's purple flames sort of burning off his, mm-hmm. the top of his head and his shoulders. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could be forgiven for thinking that Iris had actually exhaled him, to be honest. <laughs> yes, just to be the origin yeah. of the... This vapour is... Yeah, like a, a vaporous formancy emerging from her mouth. But we'll see if that's the case. But no, it's a very, very striking, effective cover, as you'd expect from Mr. Adam. So, shall we jump in? Yes. Awesome. Page one. The first caption is topped off with a little illustration of the Justice League of America satellite. And the caption reads... 22,300 miles from Earth, the story begins. Soon to touch the ball of confusion whirling below. The scene... JLA headquarters, about to gain a new sentinel. And panel one shows the Flash in full costume at one of the famous monitor desks and there's a light flashing. And the Flash is thinking, my replacement, right on time. And the caption for panel two says, The Dark Knight detective, the Batman. Batman has a hand extended, almost like he's going to greet the Flash, but the Flash has no time to lose. As the Flash zooms past the Cape Crusader, Batman says, Flash, what? No time to rap, Batman, as the Flash accelerates towards the famous JLA transporter tube. And then in panel three, he's already down at Earth, speeding through a busy city. And there's an amusing shot of a motorist looking very surprised as the Flash runs past him, as the Flash continues to think, going home for a date with an angel. And we then have a caption that reads, Like chasing after Alice's white rabbit, the Flash streaks unsuspectingly toward the scenario of madness and mayhem, whipped up by... The The Evil Sound sound of of Music. Another caption tells us that this adventure is being brought to us by... Story, Mike Friedrich, Art, Irv Novik and Murphy Anderson. Oofed, right, Mike Friedrich. (laughs) We've had quite a lot of Mike Friedrich recently, so let's hope it's not too Mike Friedrich. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope it's more Spectre Issue 3 than JLA 89. (laughs) Yes, I concur, I concur, sir, I concur. (laughs) We continue with the story then. First caption for the first panel of page two. For as the Flash races homeward, bound through noisy rush hour traffic, nearby there exists only the sound of sinister silence. It's a high angle shot looking down at a gentleman who's sat at a desk, poring over an enormous book. Says some other volumes ranged around him. There's a large candle, a large flame, and in the immediate foreground is a human skull. It's all very Gosh. scary. We've met this guy before. We move a little closer. It's another very moody shot in panel two. As this chap, we can see he's a red cape. He's a yellow turban, and he's thinking... Ah, the dark books of Torah confirm my feelings. The Nexus is approaching, when the forces of time and space shall come together at a vital moment of climax. And in that moment, I must act. Though my powers be severely weakened by the loss of my potent ruby of life, in the coming crisis, the ruby shall be rightfully returned to me. A crisis? Good gosh, we haven't heard of those for a while. The perspective shifts for the large panel four, as we see this chap, who now is yelling almost. Then shall I resume my quest for the mastery of the mystic secrets of time. Aye, the Flash shall soon regret crossing the path of... Sargon the Sorcerer! And there's a little asterisk, and then a caption tells us... Editor's note, Sargon, the Golden Age hero-turned-villain, first mixed with Flash in issue 186. Yes, issue 186, which we covered in our 102nd episode. Mm -hmm. So if you want to go and do some reminding yourself, or if you're a new listener, you want to get yourself up to speed, pause where we're at just now and go and have a listen to our 102nd episode. It covers issue 186 of The Flash that was published 
in January 1969. Back to the, the plot of issue 207, the caption for the next panel. Unaware of the upcoming threat to his life, the fastest man alive vibrates into his home faster than the eye can see. Pressing a secret spring on his ring, a suction device is activated, drawing in his deflatable uniform. I think both of those captions are completely redundant because anyone that's reading can see what's going on. Nevertheless, the, <laughs> the caption continues and concludes in the first panel of page three. Leaving Barry Allen to greet his wife, Iris. Barry, whose hair is the longest I think I've ever seen on the podcast. Yeah. He's very much a man of his time now. Long gone is the, the crew cut and the, the stuffy bow tie. Barry leans in to peck Iris on the cheek, and there's going to be an awful lot of David acting for the next couple of pages, so Peter can put his feet <laughs> up and relax for a moment. Barry says, as he kisses his wife, Surprise, sweetheart. I'm back from my Justice League monitoring duties. So early? I counted on you being late, as usual, says Iris. Barry has gone to his record player mm. in the next panel, put a disc on, which started playing, and we can see folded neatly in the background, lying on his bed, is a black and orange striped shirt, very like the ones that Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent wore in some episodes that we did last year. Perhaps the Justice League all have the same tailor. <laughs> yeah, and like as I've said already, we have to find, that's our New Year's <laughs> resolution, we have to find a, a couple of shirts similar to this so that we can get our photograph taken wearing yes. them. That'll be nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stay tuned for that one, listeners. So Barry's saying, in response to Iris's jibe about him being late, Not today. We have tickets to the big rock concert tonight, remember? I need time to get ready. The big rock concert reminds me of all the times in EastEnders when they'd say, do you want to go and see that new film? Rather than actually <laughs> saying the name of the film. Yes. Why don't you say who you're going to see, Barry? Come on. <laughs> Panel three is great. Barry, interestingly, he's putting on his new striped shirt and he seems to have his shoes on before he's put on his trousers. That's very odd. <laughs> He'll just vibrate them on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very unusual behaviour. But Barry is... He's in a world of his own, he's tapping his feet, he seems to be whistling along to the record that's playing, and Iris watches this, thinking, I can't believe this is really happening. Out of costume, Barry's so contrastingly slow-moving. Such a normal American husband. Until he turns on the music. Music seems to wrap itself around Barry, affecting him totally, instantly. He can't help but move to the beat. And we see in panel four, Iris is dressed up for the occasion, nice long, floor-length orange dress. Barry has his new suit on. It's a sort of dark green, contrasts well with the mm -hmm. stripy shirt. It looks like there's some piping around the jacket. There's a definite flair to the trousers. And he's still tapping away, still enjoying the vibe. And then he says in the final panel, Come on, honey, you think because you were born a thousand years from now, I expect to wait that long for you to get dressed? And there's an asterisk in the middle of that little line of dialogue, which leads us to another caption that reminds us. Editor's notes, as shown in The Flash, issue 203 which we covered earlier on in the podcast in the episode entitled The Flash's Wife is a Two-Timer. Yes, yeah, so that was probably about six weeks ago or something by now. But anyway, we arrive at the top of page four. Iris is saying, Sorry, Barry, I was distracted. It seems so strange that you should be a rock fanatic. Oh, come on, Iris, I may be pushing 30, but I'm not over the hill yet. Hmm, says Iris. If only we could get back some of the good old-time rock and roll that I love. Elvis... Buddy Holly, Fats Domino, could you zip me up in the back, please? Barry moves in to oblige and saying, You're just not keeping up with the times, that's all. We're going to have to super speed if we hope to keep up with a Washington starship tonight. I'm going to come back to that line, right? Yes. That's fascinating. Panel three, nice silhouette image of the, the Allens leaving their apartment, heading off to the gig. I wonder if the Washington starship are playing. <laughs> Iris is saying, Super speed? Does that mean you're going to put on your flash uniform? 
No chance. These new clothes haven't been treated yet. They'd get terribly wrinkled underneath the costume. Then panel four shows them zooming off. Not obviously too quickly because we don't want Barry's clothes to get burnt up. Maybe his aura will protect him. I don't know. Anyway, Iris is saying, Ha ha! A mod flash! What a sight! If anyone could see us! That's me, an out of sight flash, as they zoom off and listeners take a drink because there's a full moon looming in the background. Yay! Well, Murphy Anderson did ink this one, so this maybe he true. just that in himself. Maybe snuck it in on the quiet because he, he knew that we'd we'd be doing this on the podcast one day. <laughs> so, it's a slow dissolve. And the caption for panel five of page four says, Meanwhile, backstage at the Penny Lane Rock Dance Hall... Now, these references, listeners, they're coming thick and fast. We're not going to comment on them because one of the letters that talks about this issue highlights them for us. But see if you can spot any other rock music references as we continue. So, backstage at the Penny Lane Dance Hall, indeed, with a couple of people who are obviously members of the band. There's a, a young lady with long, thick, dark hair. There's a fringe. She's a purple dress with flowers on it. She's purple boots. Another chap who looks a bit like a cross between Gene Clark and Roger McGuinn of the Birds. He's a heavy fringe, hair grown out at the side. He's wearing, again, it's one of these season one of Blake Seven costumes. He's wearing a green yes, long sleeve uh-huh. jumper with a sort of brown waistcoat effort over the top of it. He's holding what looks to be a giant recorder in this first panel. And he's saying, Gracie, we're on in a couple more minutes. Hey, what's the matter? I just did a short rap with an uncle of mine, Paul. Bad vibes all round. Even the baby seemed to kick every minute he was near. Oh, in the next panel, Paul moves in to hug Gracie, and he says, Don't let the old folks bug you. Our kid's gonna be born into a world they've messed up, but we're gonna fix. He looks a little bright on the final panel, as he says, Come on, smile. After this last gig, you'll quit to have the baby. Let's get it on. Now, I'm just going to interject quickly and observe at this point. The band are called Washington Starship, which is a clear reference to Jefferson Airplane, mm-hmm. who were founded in Chicago in 1965. And I think, I'm guessing, that these two people are references to Paul Kantner and Grace Slick of the aforementioned band. So Gracie is obviously a little bit of a stretch, not too too different. And Paul is obviously quite an obvious reference as well. So Mike Friedrich is showing, um, again, just to get in jail 89, which we did just before Christmas, <laughs> he's showing how in touch he is with everything that's going on right now. Yes, this is indeed the Earth One Jefferson Airplane. Yes, the Washington Starship. Fantastic. Right, we move to page five. There are a few captions over a large, how can we put it, freak-out panel of the band on stage. Yes, obviously some psychedelic light projections going on behind them. We see the band in action. We see Gracie. We see the bass players. We see the drummer, who looks very much like George Harrison. We see Paul on guitar. I think the bass player is supposed to be Jimi Hendrix. Could be. I don't know. I can't imagine Jimi wearing that type of sunglasses, to be honest. Well, you know, did Irv Novik know this? Yeah. The keyboard player looks very much like John Sebastian from The Love and Spoonful, so I'm convinced that that's what's going on there. But anyway, there's some captioning in this excellent panel that's definitely going on the socials. And the captioning says, The music is the story of a search and of its discoveries. Born of hill country folk and ghetto fury, then fused under an ever-present mushroom cloud, the music has become the pulse beat of a new age. Forced by that death cloud to discard the ways of old, the music looks for new ways, the new beliefs. Like legends in the olden days of prophets speaking in one's own separate tongue, here sing the new prophets. The new prophets, it says. That's, look at that. Yes, the new prophets. Sack the letter of this month. Good grief. The captioning continues under this large panel. It's harmony and a heavy drum, gentle voices and a fast rhythm. A deeply personal message, interpreted 
in a thousand individual ways. And we see some of these interpretations along the bottom of page five, because there's four separate panels of four separate couples. The first one, a young dark-haired boy and a blonde girl, and their caption says, The shining ray of hope in a chaotic world. The next panel shows a, an older-looking black couple to my eyes, and the caption there says, Channel wave for the lifeline of love. The next panel has a red-haired white girl with a black-haired white gentleman who looks very much like Steve Carell in The Office. He also looks a bit like John Hamm. Yeah, he does, actually. I can't, do you know what? I can't stand him. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I've never watched Mad Men, but he's just one of these actors that just rubs me up the wrong way. <laughs> because I have no real context for him, and the only movie I've seen him in that I can think of, you know, that really mm-hmm. rested, that I really didn't like, which was Bad Times at the, the Hotel Royale, whatever, the El Royale, whatever it was called, I just think he's one of these guys. He's so cocky and confident, and to me, it's like, why? I can't stand him. Anyway, I'm not Gosh. sure Peter's going to put this rant in, but the caption... The caption for the third little panel here says, Peace to a life that's seen years of war. And then the final panel is obviously our Barry and Iris. And their caption says, Or simply the heart bubbling of joy. Gosh, this is so Mike Friedrich at hearts. Yeah. We arrive at the top of page six. The caption for the first panel there says, But the sight and sound are a clarion call to all of a new beginning. Rocking forth the command, Come alive and... Dance to the music. I'm reminded at this point of an interview I saw once with Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits, a chat he had with Graham Nash of the Hollies that was actually filmed when Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits was talking about the shift in the culture at this period, Mm -hmm. when he still wanted to be very much a a pop star and an entertainer, but Graham Nash, late of the Hollies, then obviously of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, was very, no, music's going to change the world, man. You know, I'm reminded of this. This is obviously what Mike Friedrich <laughs> is thinking. This is fascinating. This is, as much as we did that Batman story a few months ago, this is so catching the vibe. It, yes. It's interesting. Very zeitgeisty. Mm-hmm. But it still feels like it's a year too late. Anyway, there's some more psychedelic light projection going in the background. Everyone's getting down. Barry looks like he's going to be snapping his fingers as he says, I can't sit still, Iris. Even on their ballots. Let's move it. Let's move it. A Cliff Richard reference there. <laughs> Panel two. We suddenly see that a very moodily lit Sargon the Sorcerer appears to be on site. He seems to be standing backstage next to one of the lights as he's saying, The critical moment is fast approaching. The powers are shaping. Flashes here, if so subtly drawn by my borrowed wizardry and the lure of the music. He continues in the next panel. The crux is in the music, like a sea siren calling to land-staffed sailors. The sound shall force Flash to betray himself. And panel four shows Sargon, who must have his own personal lighting director or lampy, because he always looks Uh incredibly moody and well lit in each panel. (laughs) Sargon, lit from below, gestures as a flash of gold coming from his fingers as he says, Colours of sound swirl and sway, change to demons, give Flash away. And then the caption for the next panel says, It begins innocently at first. The ballad. Soft colours slowly shifting into a myriad of malevolent hues, stabbing hurtfully over all who see. Then it comes. The Shriek! Yes, the psychedelic freak-out back projection continues, as in the foreground of the panel we see Grace looking very pained, and she screams, Eee! Paul, who we met, he's saying, What's happening? Grace! Her voice, the music hidden is all like a spell. I can't stop playing. Yes, indeed. The fingers seem to be moving very, very vigorously. I'm convinced that that's now actually Rylan off of the X Factor and things that's um, <laughs> in this morning that's actually playing drums in the background. And if you don't know who he is, listeners, you're probably better off. You're lucky. Yes. 
the first caption then for page seven. It is a shriek spawned of raw, undefined terror, shaping the colourful patterns into malevolent beings, shivering the spines of all within range. Yes, and we see that Grace is still in the middle of the stage, it's screaming, and the psychedelic light show in the background appears to be taking on demonic shapes, like the caption says. That these We can see wide eyes, the forming, we can see ears and teeth and open mouths, very like what's going on in a cover in actual fact. A caption says, Where there were smiles and joy, there are now screams and fears. Yes, and we can see that the audience is starting to panic. And there's one guy in the foreground with large glasses and a thick moustache who looks very much like Stan Lee as he did in the 70s. There's another chap with a headband who looks like one of Cheech and Chong. Another girl with large earrings. Another guy with a hat. Everyone looks panicked. Mm. Barry and Iris, though, look very restrained. Barry says, Everyone is panicking at the sound. Time for a flash appearance. Iris says, While you do that... I've got a story for picture news breaking right in front of me. And again, we can see up on the stage that the band are still playing. We have another caption, which covers the next four panels. Out of sight, Barry's uniform pops out, inflating instantly upon contact with the air. Yes, we see Barry activate his ring, his costume pops out, and over the sequence of panels at the bottom of page seven, he gets changed, thinking, Looks like my new suit is going to get wrinkled after all. Blasted! He looks, does look very annoyed and focused in the final panel of page seven. There is a caption at the top of page 8. But the beat goes on. The spellbound shriek continues as the clashing colours churn, ever more frighteningly. Yes, in the first panel, we see Barry running backstage. Things have obviously changed. This is my line of work, actually. It's quite interesting. Things are very different. You don't really see such a big, massive row of master switches. But anyway, (laughs) Barry runs along a big row of switches thinking, First things first. Shut down the electrical power. Turn off the instruments and lighting equipment. And we can see on stage that the demonic faces are still forming. Grace is still screaming. The band are still playing. Punters are still running away. The Flash runs towards all this chaos, thinking, the music didn't shut off. Something else must be involved. Something sinister. That shriek. The hideous music overpowering. The colours on the screen turning into terrifying monstrosities. The Flash doing a very, very good job there of actually just telling you what I'd already described. (laughs) He continues to think over the next panel, which shows a panicking audience, one of whom appears to be Scalp Hunter from off of Weird Western Tales, several years before he first appeared. Yes. Flash is thinking, it's all I can do to stop myself from joining everyone in blind panic. Final panel, page eight, shows the Flash. He's accelerated in front of the crowd and he's opening up all of the exit doors, that's very sensible. We don't want any nastiness. And as he does this, with the kids running towards the doors, Flash is thinking, I must help them before anyone's hurt or killed. And he's obviously there, clearly thinking about some of the stuff that happened at the Altamont Festival, mm. which is obviously the free show hosted by the Rolling Stones, where, incidentally, Jefferson Airplane actually played. Gosh. So, top of page nine. Evacuation in super speed time. The artwork in this story is phenomenal. It really is. Yeah. These are, it's going to be another one that's very difficult to choose which mm-hmm. panels Definitely. to fit on the socials. But basically, we see the Flash accelerating through the first exit, and he seems to have generated a bit of a vortex because he's drawing all of the kids and the punters behind him. We can see the demons forming out of the, the light projection in the background. Panel two, the Flash drawing everyone out through the exit, and panel three, the Flash returns to the room thinking, Phew! Got them all out! Now for Iris and the rock group! Panel four, it looks as though Iris has actually joined the band on stage. The band are still playing, the demon faces are still forming in the background, and Paul from the band thinks... Flash saved everyone, but that newspaper chick, she's passing out, and the speedster doesn't see her. Final panel, page nine, Iris has indeed collapsed on the ground. And we see Paul, Paul's guitar is enormous, and I don't even see a strap, how the heck is he holding that? Mm. Paul is looking round, beholding the changes in the light projection, and he's thinking... Still can't stop playing... 
surrounded by more and more evil. The lights, the colors becoming solid, demonic. Good God, what hell is this? Fantastic. Gosh, we're on page 10 already. This is so exciting. We're back mm. with uh, Sargon the Sorcerer, who looks as though his teeth have been colored blue in my copy. I think it's just the printing. Yeah, it's unfortunate, yes. The caption for the first panel of page 10. Meanwhile, unaffected by the nightmare he has conjured up. Yes, once again, Sargon is gesturing and he's thinking. The Nexus is now, with Flash bottled up at super speed, unable to concentrate on me or my spell. I act. And in panel two, we see the Flash running past Sargon. He doesn't seem to have spotted Sargon. And Sargon gestures and says, By the power of Torah in my need, may I conquer Flash's speed. And then we see in panel three that Flash seems to be caught in some kind of glowing blue aura and is being drawn towards Sargon. Sargon exclaims, Ah, success. Expectations fill my heart. My quest is almost fulfilled. Flash is spellbound. Mine to command. I have but minutes, though, for my spells are weak. And then in the final panel of page 10, the Flash is turning and rushing back into the, the room where the gig was taking place. And as this happens, Sargon gestures and says, Go, Flash. Do as I have bid you. We're at the top of page 11 now, and there's a caption which has one of those old Carmine Infantino-style pointing fingers that's Yay. directing our attention towards something. But the caption says, A split second. Time enough to race into the Flash Museum, into a room accessible only at super speed. Yes, we see the finger is pointing at a glass case, a very large glass case on the table, which appears to have some kind of jewel inside it. In the foreground of the panel, we see a bust of the Flash and the, the real deal himself accelerating in and drawing to a halt in panel one. And then the caption for panel two says, A split second. Time enough to lift up the object of a sorcerer's search. A red, red ruby. And indeed, that's what we see. There's a little burst of energy as Flash's gloved hand lifts up the jewel. And then panel three is captioned, A split second. Time enough to return the gem to Sargon the Sorcerer to its original owner. Yes, and we see, very simply, Flash running towards Sargon, whose hand is open to receive the jewel. In panel four, Sargon again very spectacularly leapt from underneath and smiling wildly has the jewel in his hand as he says, At last! The ruby of life! Mine once more! What worlds shall open for me? Flash standing motionless in the background. It's not quite clear if he's being held by Sargon, but my goodness, does he look ripped. Look at those abs. Mm. In the final panel of page 11, Sargon very helpfully tells us what he's up to. First, to replace this gem in its turban position. Then take my leave of here. My spell of a flash ends within seconds. So Sargon fixes the, the ruby into position. We can see behind him the flash is standing immobile and seemingly looking beyond Sargon into the room in the background where the gig was taking place. And we can see still that the light show is going on and the demons are still forming, which takes us then to the first panel of page 12 and a caption that says, A split second. Time enough to see wizardry gone wild. And we see Gracie and Paul on stage. Gracie still seems to be screaming and singing. And Paul is still playing away feverishly. As he looks behind him, the demons are almost fully formed. We can see hands and full faces and full heads as they reach out of the maelstrom down towards Gracie. As Paul thinks... The Ereb colours have materialised into demons, threatening Grace. Panel 2 seems with the Flash is shrugging off the effects of Sargon's spell as he sees the demons also looming. And he thinks... Those nightmares swarming about Iris... We have another caption then that says, A split second. Is it time enough to strain against evil? Battle with the primal power one truly possesses? And it's an interesting one here, and we're going to debate what the two chaps are thinking here, because it's not entirely clear at this point in the narrative that they should know everything that's going on. But anyway, it seems as though Paul and the Flash 
are sharing the same thoughts at the moment. Paul is thinking, Sargon's spell, binding me, can't move. And Flash appears to be thinking, but I must, I love my wife. And as you say, they both seem to be thinking, it's not very clear, but we'll discuss this. Yes. So, the next panel, another caption says, A split second, is it time enough to overcome evil with love? To change chains into freedom? And Paul has managed to move, he drops his guitar, lunges forward thinking, Free! I can stop playing and move! And the Flash manages to move forward. He exclaims, Broke the spell! I can run again! And that takes us to the top of page 13, and another caption. A split second. Is it time enough for two lives? One life? And we're back in the territory of having a panel that looks quite similar to the cover. Mm-hmm, even yes. though, at this point, Flash is managed to start moving. There's a greeny-yellow demon lunging down towards Iris with his mouth wide open. Flash speeds forward, thinking, I need instant super speed to save Iris. And then the next panel, this page is a very unusual layout. In the next panel, Grace is still screaming, and there's a large pink demon looking as though it's about to grab her. As Paul rushes forward, thinking, I've been given a chance to save Grace. I can't muff it. And then we have another caption over a full-length image of Sargon. A split second. An eternity of time for Sargon to be stabbed to the core by the reality of his foul deeds. Yes, the ruby of life glows as Sargon actually looks a bit concerned and thinks, My demon spell, completely out of control. Grace, in danger, cannot be rescued in time. Now, at this point, I say, why is Sargon so worried about Grace? Something's not too clear in the narrative. But anyway, the caption for the final panel of page 13. A split second. A tick-tock of time for the sorcerer to see his soul... And be frightened. And a very panicked Sargon cries, I can't run away from here. Only I can save my dear Grace. And another caption says, Hurry, Sargon, you have only a microsecond to right a wrong. Gosh, I don't know about you listeners, but I'm getting tired of all these captions. I wonder if Peter's getting tired of saying them. We arrive (laughs) at the top of page 14, and another caption says... Thus, within a split second, Flash grasps his beloved Iris from the fingertips of a fiend. The fingertips of a fiend. That's a fun bit of alliteration, isn't it? Yes. Mm. Flash speeds in. The green demon is left disappointed as Flash grabs Iris and rushes her out of the way, thinking, Got to get Iris out of here! And the caption for panel two... And Sargon, as in his heroic days of old, calls on his ruby of life in the cause of right. And we see Paul rushing towards Grace as Sargon touches his ruby in his turban and thinks... The gem has power over all with which it comes into contact, and often it has touched the books of Torah, by which I cast this accursed demon spell. And it looks as though Sargon rubbing the ruby has switched everything off because it looks as though the demons are sort of dissolving just into patterns of light. A large caption then follows. Thus, with the shrieking stopped, the demons dissolve into a fading nightmare. I'm glad that caption clarified. We see Paul hugging Grace closely. Paul says, There, there it's all over. Let it be. Grace is crying and she says, No, no, how can I ever forget the terror, the agony, how? And in the foreground of the panel, Sargon says, Grace, I'm sorry. Paul looks appalled and cries, You? In the next panel, Grace turns around, sees Sargon, and she says, My sweet lord, no, you caused me the pain. You, my own Uncle John Sargent. Ah, so that explains why Sargon was so worried when he says, Yes, Grace, t'was I, but you must listen. A tearful Grace then says in the next panel, Listen? After what you did to me and to my baby? 
how it must feel to have been wretched into hell and back before it's even born. And we see Sargon gesturing towards his ruby again and a cloud of smoke appears to be appearing around his feet. And the next panel, he seems to be dissolving in this cloud as he says, No, please stop. I don't dare stay. Flash will soon come back. I can't listen. And the caption concludes page 14, saying, And then there is only the sweet music of silence, the bridge over troubled waters of the mind, <laughs> soothing the throbbing pain of memory. Yes, we need, right, we need to call these out, man. Like, let it be, <laughs> obviously, which the Beatles reference, My Sweet Lord, which is a George yes. Harrison reference, obviously, <laughs> and then bridge over troubled waters. It's egregious. If this was the Power of Three Doctor Who podcast I used to be involved with, Kenny would be falling over himself for inspiration for songs to play out with. Listeners, if we haven't mentioned it already, Pete and I have both contributed to some recent episodes of my erstwhile colleague's current Doctor Who podcast, mm-hmm. which is called Pieces of Eighth. Pete and I have both contributed to some recent episodes of that, so we should encourage you to investigate Kenny's podcast, especially for the Doctor Who fan. Yes, it was a lot of fun to do, yes. So, with that plug out of the way, we arrive at the final page of the story. A large caption says... Epilogue. And the caption for the first panel says... So the story ends. For some, there is light-heartedness. Yes, we're with Barry and Iris. He's pressing his costume ring and his suit is shrinking down as he says... That's twice I've run into the Sargon character, and I still have no idea who he is or what he wants with that mystic ruby. To which Iris says... Well, you'll just have to do some investigating. As for now, I've got to iron your new clothes. Gosh, are they wrinkled? Come on, hand him over. And we see Barry looking very surprised and dishevelled indeed as his hair's messed up and his new suit looks very crumpled indeed. Caption then for panel three after a slow dissolve. For others, there are heavier thoughts. We're with Paul and Grace. Grace is sat down still looking a bit teary. Paul is returning a telephone, a dial telephone actually, to its receiver. Listeners, if you don't understand what that means, you're very young. Ask your parents or even your grandparents. Paul is saying, Great news, Grace. The doctor says you and the baby are both in excellent shape. No physical problems at all. Grace, unconvinced, says, But what about our heads, man? I just wonder. A slow dissolve, and yet another caption. And in Sargon's occult hideaway. We see Sargon beholding, looking at his turban and the jewel, as he thinks, I used her. My own niece, to whom I've almost been a father, used her like a rag doll. Is this the direction my magic ruby has taken me? Where did I turn down this lonesome road? Is it too late to find my way back? And a closing caption says, Naturally, to be continued in a future issue, for this is not the end, but merely the end of a day in the hectic life of The Flash. Yep, Sargon will return, not even actually in the pages of The Flash, but we shall say more about that at a later time. Yes. Yes, yeah, spoilers, sorry. So, that was very lively, wasn't it? I feel I feel like I've just gone for a, a quick <laughs> one-mile sprint after reading that story. Did you enjoy that story, David? Yes, I did. Good. I'm starting to laugh a little bit at Mike Friedrich. He seems so <laughs> earnest and so keen to, to be with it and to be, you know, yeah. in touch. Maybe he was with it. Maybe these all were references when he wrote it, but just by the time the issue was published, then, you know, it was a little bit out of date. Bearing in mind how long had passed since the first Sargon, it was issue 186. Well, that's true. It's a good couple of years, isn't it? I was reminded, actually, in some ways, of the, the Jay Garrick story we did from Flash 203 yes. a couple of months uh-huh. ago, because uh-huh. that obviously had similar scenes of freakouts mm-hmm. amongst the young people. But I suppose Mike himself was quite young, so it's probably not too bad. We should get this out of the way. I was amused by the references to... Washington Starship. You know, I, I mentioned how my feelings that, that Grace and Paul were references to the members of Jefferson Airplane, but of course, oh. 
Jefferson Airplane split up in the early 70s, but reformed as Jefferson Starship in 1974. Yes. And I wonder, <laughs> did this alias that Mike Friedrich gave them in this comic, did that inspire that choice of name? You know, Who knows? Life imitates art, yes. I have a vague memory of Roy Thomas making reference to Jefferson Starship in a, a much later on letter column. I don't know if we'll... I could be wrong. I could be misremembering. We'll okay. see if it pops up. But it was very interesting. Hmm. I got to be honest with you, I quite like a few Jefferson Airplane songs, like Someone at Love is just is a masterpiece, and White Rabbit yes. is also a masterpiece, but by the time you get to the 80s and stuff like Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, We Built This City on Rock and Roll, they've devolved yeah. into absolute cheese, and I can't. I find it very difficult to take them seriously. <laughs> <laughs> That's another point, White Rabbit was referenced as well, right at the very start, yes. in the opening captions, yeah. So I'm sure that was absolutely deliberate. Yeah, without a doubt. And Jefferson Starship, you know, obviously substituting George Washington for... Thomas Jefferson, that's quite an interesting um, little <laughs> thing as well. It's a very a very interesting story. The only sort of down thing about it is that it's so long after issue 186. Yeah. It's over two years. Yeah. Before we recorded this episode, I went back and listened to, to the episode we did previously myself, just to remind myself of everything that had happened because it had been so long since we'd done it. So unless yeah. the readers mm-hmm. were regularly rereading their back issues, they might have been a bit <laughs> lost. True, true. Yeah, I did the same. I went back and looked at the issue and I realised as well, at the time, during that adventure, the Flash only encounters Sargon in that mysterious other dimension, pulls him out of there and leaves him by a tree. That's right. At no point does he find out his name. Mm. He doesn't know that he's called Sargon. He literally is this mysterious guy in a turban that he rescues from another dimension and leaves by a tree, who then vanishes. Yes. Who had this mysterious ruby. And also in this story, he's not referenced as Sargon to the Flash, but the Flash seems to know his name is Sargon. Yes, it's, that's a bit clumsy, isn't it? Yeah. In our previous episode, when we covered Flash 186, we put off the Is Sargon from Earth 1 or Earth 2 debates until we had further evidence. Yes. Now, going by this issue, it's a bit strange because Flash seems to know his name, which you may have learned from comics. That's a good point, yes. But he should have recognised him before, perhaps, in the previous issue. Yes. That's quite weak evidence. I'm just I'm being very historical here. It's, no, it's a good point. I would agree. It's worth mentioning that, yeah. However, we've got Sargon here, who has got a grown-up niece, who is... At probably about 20 at least, mm-hmm. on Earth 1. So unless there's some sort of adoption involved or he's been travelling between the two Earths. Can you adopt a niece? No, I don't think you can. It's a sort of foster family, whatever, you know. I think the old off-quoted, off-comes razor thing, I think Sargon is Earth 1 at this point. At this point in the stories that we've read, it seems to be. This is the Sargon of Earth 1. It's the, I mean... Mm-hmm. Until it's contradicted. Readers at the time would assume it's an Earth-born character. And we mentioned uh, a comic creator, or I mentioned a comic creator a few minutes ago that loves mixing this sort of stuff up. We know that Sargon's migratory habits will be addressed a long, long, long time in the future when we do one of the most convoluted and awful stories that we'll ever... (laughs) (laughs) In my opinion, anyway. Which also makes this story a bit more difficult to reconcile. (laughs) Yes. Whereas an Earth-1 Sargon makes so much more sense. Yes. We'll talk further about Justice League issue 220 in about five years' time. <laughs> Maybe sooner. Yeah, well, I think we just have to go with it. At the moment, Sargon is on Earth-1, mm-hmm. and he seems to be operating Earth-1, and has some family stuff going on there. So, yeah, that's it was got a bit messy there at points mm. when we didn't realise why Sargon was so concerned about Grace. I think I would have been happier, although the, the uncle was mentioned at the start, I think I might yeah. have been happier if that relationship had been revealed. Uh-huh. But I suppose it works quite well as a as an Act 3 twist to what's yeah, going true, on, doesn't it? True. 
Mm-hmm. I don't really have too much else to say. It, it was a nice rapid adventure. It's interesting to see another Golden Age hero coming back so long after his last appearances. Yeah. It ties into our commitment to, to deal with such things. It's fun to see Iris and Barry sort of developing as the 70s start to kick in. You know, we're, we're a long yeah. way from pillbox hats and short blazers for Barry. Yeah, Barry's outfit is genuinely hilarious because it is kind of, it's almost like Howard at the Big Bang Theory because, you know, he's got the, <laughs> he's got the shirt open, he's got the ascot underneath. He, he obviously thinks he's really quite cool with it. The ascot's, see, on one of the panels, it looks like he's got stars or polka dots or something on it. Right. It's red with like these black stars or something. Of course, the collar on the shirt is massive, which is <laughs> excellent. I wholeheartedly support that. The green suits has got these button-down pockets, which I find awesome. I love them. They're fantastic. <laughs> I have the feeling, listeners, that the next time I see Peter, he's going to be <laughs> wearing an identical suit. Yes. Strutting down Socky Hall Street with an obscure Jefferson Airplane song that I don't know the name of playing in the background. <laughs> also, it's fun to see the differences in their musical tastes. You know, Yes, very much so. Iris likes the classics. Elvis, Buddy Holly, all that sort of stuff. Is this the first mention of Buddy Holly in the podcast? It could well be. I think be. it is, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Elvis, listen, I must just tell you, I got the DVD of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis movie for Christmas and I cannot wait to watch it in the comfort of my own home Good. with a large tub of sweets and a big bag of crisps or something. <laughs> Did you see that film yet yourself, Peter? Yes, something cinema. Huh? Number one of my, my list of films for 2022. Good Loved against it. It was excellent, yeah. Anyway, back to the plot. I must admit, towards the end, I was getting a bit sick of saying, a split second. <laughs> I was like, okay, yes. okay, Mike, we get the idea. Yes. Take a drink, listeners, every time Peter says a split second. <laughs> <laughs> the split second thing captioning is actually quite a nice narrative trick from, mm, from uh-huh, Mike, yeah. though, I think. It, it generated a bit of pace and momentum. Yeah. Which I think, the way we were reading it, obviously we would have slowed that down a little bit but if you're just reading uh it quickly in your own head it it works very very well but anyway it does emphasize flashy speed that is true yes that's true yeah i found it quite interesting as well that they added in the continuity aspect of just a throwaway reference to barry's wife iris being from the future originally yes that was great that was fantastic it was yes it's it's nice that that's not just been a a one and done Mm -hmm. sort of thing it's nice that it's still referencing we'll have to i mean we'll be doing a fair few more flash stories as we continue so i'll have to watch out for any any more mentions of that Yes. So we jump on now to Flashgrams from issue 210 for the reader reaction. And the first letter says, Dear Editor, I enjoyed Flash 207 a great deal. I was thinking how to explain why I thought it was such a good issue, though I kept thinking of reasons it should have been bad. The threat of Sargon the Sorcerer, for example, never seemed particularly potent. It would seem as though the idea of a light show turning into fearsome monsters would be pretty scary. But for some reason... I couldn't quite find it in myself to take it seriously. Hmm. Here's another point. Sargon shows up at a rock concert and wreaks havoc. For what purpose? To distract Flash. Whatever gave him the idea that Flash was going to be at that rock concert? That's a very good point. And then the climax of the plot comes when Sargon stupidly forgets about a spell he has cast. I don't know, it just seems as though people were wandering around in this story a little too much like idiots. So most of the motivations for actions in The Evil Sound of Music were pretty unconvincing. Oh well, I never claimed that it was technically a well-constructed story, but the actions were nice. Even though there was no logical reason Barry Allen and Paul should have been able to overcome Sargon's spell, I'm enough of a romantic that I like to see a man's love for his wife depicted as importantly as it was. Kind of interesting in a smallish way to keep tracks of which heroes like which kinds of music. Flash goes for rock, as does Green Arrow, well, Green Lantern prefers Dixieland. 
If the Justice League ever have a few weeks to spare, they ought to make an album. The Kid Flash story, Phantom of the Cafeteria, was okay too. I was pleased to see that Wally West is dating some of the girls at his high school instead of spending all his time with superheroes. The joys of the ordinary life are too worthwhile to be passed by simply because one is not ordinary. Yes, Wally and the ladies. Hmm. And that's from Sven Karlberg from Sarasota, Florida. Cool. There's an editorial response, but it doesn't really address any of his points, which is fair enough. I'm going to read the next letter. It says, Dear Editor, being a rock fanatic, I had to write giving my views on the evil sound of music in the 297th issue of The Flash. That's what it says. It's not the 297th. Yes, it's, it's the it's 207th. <laughs> Some of the copy editing in 207 was bad, but this is even worse. Our correspondent continues, The art was great, particularly Murphy Anderson's inks, which certainly do justice to Novick's penciling. Mm-hmm. What really caught my eye was the rock group in the story. I couldn't help but notice the similarity of Washington Starship to Jefferson Airplane, who have perhaps coincidentally a new album entitled Jefferson Starship. So there we are. Mm. Another pleasant find was the constant use of rock song titles throughout the story, such as Bridge Over Troubled Waters, White Rabbit and The Beatles' Let It Be, Come Together, Penny Lane and My Sweet Lord by George Harrison, to name a few. I have to say I missed Come Together completely. That's quite funny. Yeah, me too. Uh I'll have to go back and look for that. To sum things up, I'll have to say that this issue will not only bring joy to rock fanatics, but hopefully joy to the world. And that's from Wesley Hightree, Jameson M.O. Is that Missouri? I don't know. Montana? Steve will tell us. Steve, we're making it your mission to go and track down Wesley Hightree and get a photograph with him. (laughs) (laughs) And the editorial response says, as far as that joy to the world is concerned, include the next correspondent out of this world. Uh Uh-oh. And the next letter says, Dear Editor, what's happened to Flash? I pick up the June issue and find my favourite superhero muttering teeny bopper cliches like no time to rap. But that's not enough. I read further and find an entire page and a half devoted to Barry Allen stomping around and gyrating like he's auditioning for American Bandstand. I read on and muddle through some more raps, vibes, gigs, get it ons. Now I just merely glance over the rest of the story, not wanting to believe what I see. Okay, a menace at a rock concert, not my idea of a terrific premise, but okay. But what's not okay is the extraordinarily poor way it was handled. Aside from just plain running, Flash's only super speed stunt is whisking a group of hippies through an exit door. Wow, isn't that clever? And what clever tactic does Flash use to escape Sargon's paralysing spell? He says, I love my wife, and the spell is broken, of course. So now Flash has a new superpower. Whenever he's in trouble, he merely has to think about Iris, and he'll come out on top. That was kind of revisited, really, with Linda and Wally in the Flash volume 2. <laughs> That's very true. That's very interesting. <laughs> the letter continues. I think you know what I'm driving at, Mr. Editor. Not so very long ago, fans like myself could look forward to new and ingenious super speed stunts, tightly woven sci-fi plots, a battle of wits with one of his many costumed criminals. But these days are no more. Lately, the usual fare has been what some call human interest plots. Involving everyday people. Unfortunately, this has also come to mean disappointing, uninspired adventures with little excitement and a minimum of routine super speed action. But there have been exceptions. The recent blockbuster, The Flash's Wife is a Two-Timer, was a superb story every bit as memorable as any of the cherished Flash sagas of the 60s. The follow-up, The Secret Identity Exposé, was not as outstanding, but still worthy of The Flash. Both stories escape the trappings of his jargon, soggy emotion and soul-searching, which are so prevalent in almost every other strip. Mr. Editor, why not keep the Flash unique? By making him a happily married, well-adjusted superhero with no overwhelming problems or identity crises. 
believe in the current comics industry, this is unique. Please return Flash to his original greatness. Bring back the rogues gallery on a regular basis. The recent elongated man Mirror Master story was a good sign. That is actually a fantastic backup story. Dick Giordano does the art. It's superb. Bring back sci-fi concepts and gimmicks. Bring back original ingenious super speed stunts. No matter how hard your writers must think. Trouble is, I don't know what current writer in your stable can write the kind of Flash I'm talking about. Kanagar dragged Flash through the bogs of human interest stories. Friedrich is too teen-orientated. Always trying to be relevant. O'Neill, the best characterization man in the business, would probably give Barry Allen a slew of hang-ups and a shaky marriage with Iris. Robbins wrote several atrocious camp stories, which I still haven't forgiven him for. If only Julius Schwartz had time to write. And that's from Neil Martin from Cleveland, Ohio. He makes a lot of very interesting points there, and it's that letter's one of the best ones, I think, for this issue, because mm-hmm. it really highlights the, the benefit of us, I think, of doing this contemporary correspondence. Yeah. We both quite enjoyed the story, enjoyed it as a bit of fluff, but... It's always at the time the readers were kind of, uh, yeah. I don't repeat myself, but this really does emphasize why why it's important to, to look at the these old letters. Yeah, we have said before how this period has kind of got the horrible thing happening to the Flash on the cover. Yeah. Every issue. He is absolutely right there. There's not a focus on super speed action. There's not a focus on outwitting the villain. It's it's all been, yeah. this is the Flash in a park bench crying. Why? Yeah, yeah, you've said that a few times. It's a mm-hmm. it's a spate of crying flash covers. Yeah, an epidemic almost. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the editor response to that letter, and especially in reference to the the final line about Julie Swartz doing some writing, the response is from Julie himself, who says to say nothing of the inclination. So that's quite <laughs> amusing. The next letter, then, dear editor, things just haven't been the same since Carmine Infantino, Gardner Fox, and John Broom split. Ah well, you probably hear that several times a day. So I'll stop sighing over the glories of yesteryear, and get down to business. A surprise awaited me in issue 207, a flash story, courtesy of Mike Friedrich, that, if not altogether good, was at the very least interesting enough to hold my undivided attention for however long it took me to run through 15 pages. What did it matter if Iris Allen was still as annoying as were Lois Lane, Supergirl, and Wonder Woman back when I was open-minded enough to look at their comics? The reference to Elvis, Buddy Holly, and Fats Domino, all before my time, mind you, but all splendid, open brackets, well, it's a one for the money. Ba-bomp-bomp, close brackets, suffused me with a glow of pleasure. What did it matter if Barry Allen, having earned my affection by letting his formerly close-cropped hair grow wild and free, turned me off completely with his plastic hip attire? The Washington Starship, open brackets, haha, was one of the least hokey-looking rock bands ever to invade a DC magazine. Well, if you say so. <laughs> and the pregnant Gracie, no less. My, my, what would Dr. Wertham think about that? That's an excellent point. Best of all, there was Sargon the Sorcerer, an unappreciated second banana during the Golden Age, but an accomplished scene-stealer nowadays. His second appearance in The Flash was handled far, far more competently than his first, although I still haven't the smoggiest idea why Sargon strayed from the path of righteousness. I sense something more tragic about his fall from grace than a mere lust for wealth or power. I hope to see more of him soon. Correspondent concludes by saying the Kid Flash filler was so terrible that I cannot force myself to reread it for the purpose of pinpointing all the went wrong with it. Well, I quite enjoyed it when I read it. So, shush, that's mm. fine. That letter's from Stephen Utley, Garland in Texas, and the editorial response is... The precise pinpointing has been precisely handled by Christopher, following through next. Yes, we're not actually going to read the next two letters because they're both about the Kid Flash backup strip. Sorry, Wally. Peter's going to read the next letter that deals with the main story, and it goes like this. Dear Editor, just a short note, and with this end of the senior year workload facing me, no wonder, 
to tell you how much I enjoyed Flash 207, The Evil Sound of Music. Mike Friedrich is writing some really awful JLAs and some fair Robin scripts, but he really seems to have found his niche in The Flash. The prose was fast-moving and lyrical, and the dialogue was much more flowing and natural than in most DC magazines. The character motivations, something often lacking or sketchy at mainstream DC, i.e. not counting Green Lantern and the Kirbys, were clearly and believably delineated. Some topical dialogue and a villain with human problems were the high points, I think. After comparing this issue to the preceding ones, I finally decided that Flash should rediscover his rogues gallery, or even, wonder of wonder, encounter some new supervillains. My only complaints were with Iris. Of the seven Flashies since, and including 200, five have featured Iris Allen as a main attraction on the cover, and in six she figured largely in the plot. So cool it, huh? Until Grod returns. And that's from Juan Cole, Sterling, VA. Yeah, the anti-Iris league out in full force there. The editorial response just references the fact that Gorilla Grodd appeared in issue 209. Nothing really else about the, the story itself. And I shall now read the final letter. Dear editor, cheers for Mike Friedrich. The loudest of these is for the return of Sargon the Sorcerer, not only because he is the closest thing to a member of Flash's rogues gallery to appear in many moons, but it's also because it's about time Mr Friedrich added more pieces to the puzzle he initiated in issue 186. Too right. The slightly lesser cheer is for the added characterisation of Barry Allen. Imagine slowpoke, conservative and formerly crew-cut Barry being a rock music fan. Correspondent Scott Dickerson is right. Marriage has changed the flash. Finally, a laugh more than a cheer for the epilogue and Barry's wrinkled suit. I imagine him saying, This never happens to Clark Kent and he rolls his suits up. And that letter, oh, it's from Bob Rosakis, Elmont, New York. Bob Rosakis, the answer man himself. Yes. That was some interesting correspondence. I laboured the point, but it's always good to see what folk were thinking at the time. It certainly was. And also to see letters from future creators. That's always good. It's always fun. Now, speaking of letters, we've had a lovely email from one of our listeners. Have we? We have indeed. From Sal Longo from Pleasantville, New York. And Sal writes to say, hello, boys. Just a short note to tell you how much I enjoy the Earth 2 podcast and to comment about a couple of references and stories featured in recent episodes. In the recent Aquaman story, The Creature That Devoured Detroit, there was a scene that took place on a talk show, chat show, and I believe you guys referred to the host as an Ed Sullivan type. Actually, the drawing was a very accurate depiction of Johnny Carson, Ah. the second host of the long-running Tonight Show, now hosted by Jimmy Fallon. Interesting. Cementing this was the fact that the announcer of the show was drawn to resemble Johnny's long-time announcer, Ed McMahon. Carson hosted the show from 1962 to 1992, crikey jings, and is generally revered as an icon in late-night television. Bronze Age Superman comics used a Johnny Carson analogue Johnny Nevada as a recurring character. Carson City is the capital of Nevada. Get it? Yeah, remember Johnny Nevada turning up in Superman once? All right, don't remember him at all, that's interesting. Sal continues. In the world's finest story, Prize of Peril, Superman references Don Knotts. Mr. Knotts was a well-known character actor who starred in many family films like The Reluctant Astronaut, The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, and The Incredible Mr. Limpet. However, he's probably best known for two television roles. The first was as Deputy Barney Fife on The Andy Griffith Show, for which he won five Emmys, and Mr. Furley, the flamboyant landlord on Three's Company, a risque for the time sitcom about a young man who moves in with two single women. The reason that Superman used him as a reference to his ineffectiveness is because Mr. Knotts was not seen as a pillar of manhood. If you guys have any further questions about American pop culture, please feel free to ask. 
Thank you, Sal. Yeah, thanks for that, Sal. It's interesting, actually, because Steve Higgins, a friend of the show and occasional contributor, did message me after that episode. He sent me a photograph of Don Knotts, and I did recognise him Mm -hmm. from the photograph, because Steve mentioned a couple of movies he'd been in. And Steve also made reference to a few American shows. You know, I... Andy Griffith, no idea. Okay. But when he, he also mentioned Three's Company, and this is where we should say that Three's Company was based on a British series called Man About the House. Yes, it certainly was. Which ran for a long time and spun off into programmes like Robin's Nest and... George and Mildred's. George and Mildred. Yeah. I think the ladies in Three's Company were better looking, though, than the two ladies in Man About <gasps> the House. You take that but... back, sir. You <laughs> no, take no, that back. Not at all. But that's just me. Um, it's, yes, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We're very grateful for Sal saying so and for Steve when he pops up and, and gives us this feedback because some of the references are obviously they're going to go right over our head. Uh-huh. The Andy Griffith show, I have no idea. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> it, 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 it was very funny when, when Steve mentioned me and sort of said, Yeah, Don Knotts was so and so in um in Three's Company. I'm like, No, we didn't get it over here, man. <laughs> <laughs> Three's Company, what that man about the house knockoff. Okay. Exactly exactly. <laughs> well, I suppose Paula Wilcox. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But no, Sal, we really appreciate you getting in touch. That was amazing. I had no idea that you had Peter Sprung that there and I was delighted to hear from yeah. you. So <laughs> So yes, listeners, if if there's any other obvious cultural reference points that we miss please do not hesitate to get in touch and tell us what they are we'd be delighted to hear from you if you want to email us you can email us at the earth to podcast at gmail.com make sure you follow us on social media because we're putting up lots of bonus content for this and indeed every episode on facebook and instagram we're at the earth 2 podcast and on twitter we're at podcast underscore earth 2 if you're feeling generous you could go to wherever it is you receive your podcast and give us a positive review that would be very nice of you if you can't be boiled fair enough we don't hold that against you. We're just glad that you're here. We're glad that you're listening. Isn't that right, Peter? Absolutely. I've gone French again for some reason. I hate when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> also, you should check out our website. That's the earth2podcast.com where you can find this and every other episode that we've done. So there we are. Will Sargon return? Well, yes, he will. But Well, he will. Yes, he'll return. It's going to be a couple of months. It's not going to be as big a gap. Uh, a couple of months in our time. It's not going to be as long a gap as, as it was mm. since we did Flash 186. But yes, keep all that in mind because he will return, but not in the pages of The Flash. Now, it'll be interesting to see how, when he does return, how closely it references the, the Flash stories, or if indeed it does reference them at all. That will be very interesting to behold. Indeed. And on that note, I've been Peter. And I've been David. We will see you again very soon on The Earth 2 Podcast. podcast. Transmatter cube activated. Return coordinates set for Earth Prime. Yes, and indeed the fingers, the fingers, <laughs> fingers. Yes, indeed the fingers seem to be the gem is power over all with which it comes into contact. 